Amen. If you have your Bibles, please open them to 1 John chapter 2. And we are going to read from verses 27 to 29. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and it is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. May God bless the reading of his word. Um, So these verses come at the end of chapter 2, and they're really a subsection to close out everything that's been really talked about in chapter 2 of First John. Um, and it, so it, he closes out some thoughts that he's had, and it kind of leads us into the next section found in chapter 3 with what does it mean for all of this to be taking place? What does it mean to be part of the community versus not part of the community? Um, because we could talk about that all day long, but it's not until we really get into the nitty-gritty, into how one acts, that we can really see the evidence where one belongs. So it's with this that we continue on with verse 27. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. In the final verse we looked at last week, John ended by focusing on those who were attempting to deceive the congregation. To contrast those who would be deceiving, he then focuses on those who have been anointed. Though the deceivers have their deceptions, those who belong to the congregation, to the community, have something far greater, and that is the anointing within them. John encourages the communities in their anointing. He specifically recognizes that they had received this anointing from him. The him is either the father or the son or both. As John often interchanges the two um, when it comes to this kind of an, an acknowledgement, regardless, we know that it is God himself who gives the anointing to the believers of the community. This anointing causes believers to be set apart, given the Holy Spirit through Christ, who is the anointed one. While there is definitely an individual element to this anointing, it should be of note that to abide in you can also be understood as abide among you or with you. In this sense, the anointing which has been given does not only abide in the believers themselves, but also with and among the believers in the community together. It is not only a vertical understanding of the anointed between you and God, but a horizontal understanding as well, which will have an effect on the relationships within the community. John continues with the statement, You have no need that anyone should teach you. With these deceivers around them them attempting to have them also leave the community, and the sound teachings of Christ and the apostles going at it, John reminds them that their anointing is instructive. This makes sense when we consider Jesus' teaching ministry. If the anointing they receive comes from him, then the anointing within them will coincide with Jesus' own teaching. And as John continues to dwell on the anointing and its instructiveness, he also encourages the community to recognize that the teachings of the anointing are true and they're not a lie. 
or as um, one of the commentators, Yarbrough, says, sufficient and trustworthy, the individuals are not in need of a new teaching about Christ or about salvation. The anointing itself is evidence of the truth of the teaching of the gospel, and the anointing itself instructs them in that truth. We see this further as John says, just as it has taught you. John recognizes that the anointing itself has already taught them concerning the truth of the gospel. It is through the proclamation of the gospel that the anointing in us takes place. If the gospel was somehow deficient, then there would be no need of an anointing, or there would be no anointing. But as it is, they have already been anointed and already experienced Christ and his spirit within them. In all of this, then, John comes to one single imperative, abide in him. This is not a recommendation, but a true imperative meant to keep the community focused on that which they have been given, and that is Jesus Christ. It is through Christ their anointing has come. If they abide in the gospel message, which they have heard concerning the Son of God, Jesus Christ, then both the Son and the Father will likewise abide in them. Every fact previously, from the anointing to its teaching, its truth, and their past experience with their anointing, points directly to this imperative, abide in him. And so we come to verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Again, And as we have seen many times within this particular chapter, John references them as little children. As previously stated, this term of endearment is meant to show his affection for the communities to which he is writing. The best way he can show his affection is to continue to encourage them in the truth of the gospel and encourage them to abide in that truth. Yet there is a question which we might ask, why should they abide in him? Is there a good reason to abide in him? in the message that they had received about him? The answer John gives is yes, there is a reason, and it involves his second coming. The second coming of Christ is, in some ways, shrouded in mystery. Um, Regardless of one's eschatological and times view, we can all agree that Christ will come again. And sometime, whether it's immediately at his coming or sometime after, there will be a judgment. This is the first aspect of the reason to abide in Christ and why John says that they can have confidence. When they abide in the truth of the gospel, they can have confidence at the return of Christ that they, will, that they have remained faithful to him and the anointing found in him, and therefore their confidence is in that they will not experience judgment. This then leads directly to not shrink from him in shame. This kind of shame stems from a victorious army. When one has been conquered... There is a type of shame which occurs. John desires that his readers do not experience the shame that will come to those who have remained rebellious instead of obedient to the truth of the gospel. If they abide in him, then they will not experience this shame at all. Instead, they will be able to claim Christ. That is the reason to abide in him, because when he does come again, then they will be confident and have no shame before him for being faithful to him. Verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, 
you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. John then continues onward with the revelation of Jesus as righteous. Those who have the anointing know Jesus is righteous. He is righteous to forgive sins. He is righteous as a propitiation for sins. Ultimately, the righteousness of Christ extends to those who are in him. This is a reason why when Jesus comes again, they can remain confident and shameless at the second coming. Because abiding in him means that they too experience his righteousness. Therefore, they have no condemnation. Yet this does not mean that one can live whatever lifestyle one wants. Instead, John recognizes that if one truly belongs to Christ, then one will practice the same righteousness which Christ himself practiced. Because he is righteous, because to be righteous is his identity, those who belong to him can and will seek his identity within themselves through their lives. Just as God is righteous and therefore acts righteously, so we too, if we are in Christ, are righteous and therefore can act and live righteously. The main point of these verses, then, is to close out the previous section concerning the community's relationship to Christ, as was previously mentioned, and to point forward to what it means to be in that relationship. Throughout this section, there has also been a dichotomy placed between those who have left the community and therefore never really belonged, versus those who remain in the community and do belong. Those who remain in the community and remain faithful by abiding in the message given to them concerning Jesus the Christ, are anointed in him, and because of this declared righteous through him, and will live righteously according to him. Now this leads us to our application points. The first one is hyperbolic instruction. (laughs) In today's verses we encountered a a hyperbolic expression from John. Now our hyperbole, hyperbole, I'm having trouble with this word, thank you, is meant to be a purposeful exaggeration. What is it that John exaggerated? It had to do with teaching. If you notice, John specifically says, you have no need that anyone should teach you. Does this mean that there is not, that we don't need any teachers, that there's no need for teachers? The answer to this is no, and let's consider why this is the case. If John means that we do not need teachers, then why is he writing a letter to begin with? He has already mentioned that he is writing to them for the following reasons. That they're the apostles and those who follow John's teachings, that their joy may be complete, that they, may, that they the recipients, may not sin. He is writing about an old and a new commandment. He admonishes them to the truth that they already know and to warn them about the deceivers. Clearly, if John is writing to inform them that they do not need any more knowledge, then the very purpose of writing seems meaningless. Therefore, we should not assume that what John is saying here means that there aren't meant to be teachers within the congregation, nor should we assume that knowledge is not to be transferred from one individual to another. Instead, what we recognize is that the focus of this chapter is the knowledge which they had received from the beginning, which is the gospel. It is through the gospel message these individuals have been anointed, and it is through their anointing which is evidence of the power of the gospel message and informs them of the truth of it. Under this understanding, the anointing is the evidence of the truth of the gospel which was taught to them originally. 
Once this gospel message has been preached, however, and once the anointing has occurred, then those anointed will know through their anointing the difference between true and false teachings. It is not that they are somehow more spiritually in tuned on their own part. It is that God has graced them with the anointing which gives them the understanding that they need. A greater ability to discern the truth from the lie, especially in regards to the gospel. In this way, we can see the necessity for the teachers. However, even teachers should be understood and heard and tested through the scriptures and the truth originally given to each of us concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ, which has given us our anointing. This does not diminish the anointing. Instead, it recognizes two things about the anointing. The first is, as has already been discussed, that it is the evidence of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This anointing is not given to us because we are deserving of it. Instead, it is given to us by grace through faith in Christ. It is through him we are anointed. It is because of him we are able to be set apart, to have the Spirit come upon us. Now the second is that this anointing is not a one-and-done event. Instead, the anointing continues to work within us, even after we have first received the anointing. Consider what John says above. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. In this we see how his anointing continues to work within us in two ways. First, it continues to teach us the truth. If there were but one moment of our anointing, then it would not continue to teach us the truth. As it does, it does continue to teach us the truth every step of the way. Second, it beckons us further into the direction we first started traveling in when we first heard the gospel, and that is to abide in Christ. When the anointing abides in us, it continues to cause us to pursue abiding in Jesus, from whom the anointing comes to us to begin with. We see our anointing helps us to distinguish between what is true and what is false. In this way, it continues to teach in and of itself, but at the same time, it allows teachers and preachers to be here with us who continue to give us knowledge through their teaching and preaching. It is our responsibility, again, and I can't underemphasize this, to test our teachers and preachers against our anointing, which comes through Jesus according to the scriptures. So the whole point, listen carefully to teachers. John is teaching these communities the same thing their anointing is teaching them, and that is to abide in him, Jesus Christ, the anointed one. Remember that we are in need of individuals to remind us of our anointing and to teach us, just as John is doing. While some may interpret these verses to mean we do not need anyone, the truth is John writing the letter itself is evidence that we are in need of preachers and teachers who are faithful to teach us to abide in Christ. Be encouraged then by the hyperbolic John, to the hyperbole John is getting across. Be encouraged by the purposeful exaggeration which informs us to cling to our anointing and to trust in the anointing, assuming we abide in Christ. In the end, that is the greatest and most important instruction that we can ever be taught. Abide in Him. Now this leads us to the Holy Spirit. This is an admission right now. This was a very late addition to the sermon, and it was driving me insane because I felt like there was something missing. 
So let's see how this goes. Another significant thing to consider is the role of the Holy Spirit in our anointing. The Holy Spirit has tended to be an enigmatic um, person when it comes to the Trinity. Yet, he is tied to our anointing. He is very much part of the anointing and the one in whom the anointing works. While we, while we receive it through the gospel of Jesus, the anointing is worked within us through the Holy Spirit. How can we know this? Consider these statements made by Jesus in the Gospel of John. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. He continues elsewhere. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit from the Father, will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And then he continues. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of the truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. In these verses, we see very closely parallels with the anointing in us and with the Holy Spirit. We can be sure the Holy Spirit is very active within this anointing. This means further that he is within us, guiding us and walking with us. Our anointing would have little meaning, if any meaning, apart from the Holy Spirit within us. He is the one who works it all through and through, which in the end makes sense. If our anointing were by itself, we would be left with only our own abilities for the anointing to have any effect. Unfortunately, we are not very strong, nor are we very able. Thankfully, God has given us a helper who causes the anointing in us to work, and that is the Holy Spirit. Remember to consider this. Jesus Christ has given us his Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to work within us. By Him, we will prevail in the world. The more we give ourselves to Him, living according to the Word, living in love, joy, patience, peace, kindness, understanding, the more the darkness will flee from us because of Him who is in us. Now let's lead us to another point. Another important point we should consider is John's final verse of the chapter, which emphasizes the righteousness of Christ and how those who do righteousness are born of him. This makes sense in the long run, but it still causes us to consider what it means to practice righteousness. How does this kind of lifestyle play out when we consider the gospel? Well, the first point we need to stress is that John is not making the claim that if we practice righteousness, then that is what makes us righteous. That would be counterintuitive to everything John has said about Christ. He is the one who is able to forgive sins. He cleanses us of all unrighteousness, and he is the propitiation for our sins. Instead of focusing on us, it seems apparent that John is focusing on Jesus as the one who is righteous. When we abide in Christ, we receive all of his righteousness as well. This is why we can say, along with the communities to whom John is writing, we know he is righteous. By abiding in him, we gain the same righteousness, making us right with God. Yet John has continually and purposefully 
reminded us of the lordship of Jesus Christ. If Christ is to be Lord, then he is to be the one by whom we live. He is the king, and we must obey his commandments and live as he lived. It is not a scenario in which we can live however we want. Instead, because Christ lived in righteousness, as those under his lordship, we must live in righteousness as well. Doesn't this mean that it is our righteousness if we are living in it? The answer is no. The truth is, is that it is his righteousness alone. Some might think that this is a cruel thing because it means whatever we do, our righteousness in the end belongs to Christ. But we need to look at it from another angle. While we desire rewards for our righteousness, we can never forget the reality that if we are in Christ, we receive all of his righteousness. This means that the Son of God, the perfect Son of God, gives us all of his righteousness. If we could live for millions and millions and millions and millions of years and perform righteous deed after righteous deed, we would never come close to accumulating the righteousness of Christ on our own. This is the scandal of the gospel. Though we are undeserving of the righteousness given to us through Christ, it is given. In turn, this causes us to desire to live according to the righteousness of Jesus Christ, according to the scriptures. So this ties back actually to the first point. The real focus is to abide in him. By abiding in him, we can live righteously, righteously, but that righteousness will always pale in comparison to the righteousness which we have through Jesus. It is because of this, because we recognize his great love for us by giving us his own righteousness on our behalf, that we seek to follow him, follow his lordship, and live righteously. Living righteously will not make us any more righteous than we already are in Christ, but it is further evidence that he is abiding in us, and we are abiding in him. We have another point. I know usually I've been doing three, but it's okay. There is a hidden encouragement John has given us today. There are many skeptics who would hear of Jesus and not ask when he is coming, but if he is coming. John encourages us in this way when he says, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Notice, John is not concerned if Jesus is coming again. He knows he is coming again. Though John may not know exactly when, he does know that it is a when and not an if. This is great hope for us for the future. This verse is eschatological and times in nature. The truth is, when Jesus returns, there will be many who will not have confidence when Jesus returns. There are many who will stand before Jesus and they will be confronted with their sin and they will not be able to stand confidently before Jesus and because of that they will shrink away in shame. The shame of knowing self, of living for self and for sin. There will come a time when the darkness will be punished, when we will face Jesus Christ. It is not an if scenario, it is a when. When it happens, how confident can we be once that confrontation occurs. Many do not have an answer to that question. Those who are in Christ, however, have been given an answer. How can we have confidence? 
when we look forward to the future, how is it that we can be sure that we will escape the judgment to come? The answer is, if we abide in Christ, then we have confidence, not because of our own doing, but because of who Christ is and his righteousness which we have received. Yes, there is great warning for those who do not abide in Christ here, but there is also great encouragement for those who do abide in Christ. So many of us wonder about the future. Does today really affect tomorrow that greatly? The truth is, it does. When we abide in Christ today, it gives us precedence to abide in Him tomorrow. And if we abide with Him tomorrow and the next day, then we can be sure that we will abide with Him when He returns. Our confidence does not rest on us. Instead, it rests in Christ. Because we can know him and know his righteousness, we can be sure that when the future comes, we will be found righteous as well. When we stand condemned, we may not be able to boast in ourselves, certainly not our own righteousness, but we can boast in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, his blood shed on our behalf. We are going to continue to experience darkness while we walk this earth. Be encouraged in the darkness to cling to the light of Jesus Christ, knowing that if we do, we will be given the promise of eternal life, because he is the eternal life incarnate. So be courageous in facing that darkness. Today, knowing that the light of Jesus Christ is brighter than any darkness, though we will experience sorrow, And though we may lose some finite pleasure, what we gain is infinite in its scope. It goes forever, for eternity. Abide in him, knowing that when he returns, we will have full confidence and have no shame before God because of the one in whom we abide. In today's text, we have seen just a glimpse of what the gospel provides for us as we have considered it. What is so fascinating to consider, that once we were on the outside, and yet through Christ we have been adopted. Where once we were wallowing in our unrighteousness, we have been given all righteousness through Jesus. And because of our anointing, we can abide in his lordship, living according to the same righteousness which we have been given. I mean, that's a hallelujah statement right there. That's an amen. Mike? Amen. Thanks. I'm just messing. (laughs) The gospel of Jesus Christ, though, is worthy of all praise. The gospel begins with our origins. God created the cosmos according to the power of his word. Yet last of all, he created humanity to bear his image. And because God is a God of love, reason, knows, can be known, has personhood, is moral, displays hesed, we can as well. It is because of this we find dignity, sanctity, and worth to human life. But like God, we are also able to choose. We could either choose to follow God in obedience and life, or follow sin and disobedience and death. We chose the latter and have continued to choose that ever since. Because of this, our relationships with God, ourselves, each other, and the world are broken. Likewise, it is because of this sin we have moral guilt before our God. Not a feeling of guilt, but true guilt before a righteous judge. Thankfully, God did not leave us in this place of darkness forever. 
Instead, he sent his light and spoke his word into the darkness, and that is Jesus Christ. Jesus lived, died, and rose again in time, space, history, and flesh. It is by his blood we are cleansed from our sins. We are redeemed through his sacrifice on the cross, and our relationships are beginning to be restored through him. His victory in life over death becomes our victory in life and over death. All that is required of us is obedience in two things. The first is repentance. We are to live lifestyles of repentance away from sin and toward God. We are to live our lives for the glory of God. We can know what glorifies God through the life of Christ, the revelation of the scriptures, and by walking in step with the Spirit who indwells all believers in love. The second is faith in Christ. We are to recognize our complete and total dependence upon the Son of God for our salvation. It is not what we do but what Christ has done, which saves us from the judgment we deserve because of our sin. We are to recognize that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone. For those who are disobedient in these things, they remain in condemnation for their sins. Those who do not confess their sins as sin continue to live a lifestyle of sin instead of repentance, remain in darkness. Their deeds, even their most righteous acts, are as filthy rags before God. Therefore, without an advocate on their behalf, they will experience the judgment of God for their sins. Yet there is hope. For though we are all in this state prior to our conversion, we can be sure that God has made a way through Christ. For those who are obedient in these things, there will be no longer condemnation, beloved. Those who are in Christ experience the love of the Father that is reserved only for the Son. They become children of God. In this life, they can have victory over sin by the power of the Spirit within them. And in the next life, they inherit an eternal kingdom where they will experience the peace of God forevermore. The future looks kind of bright for us, doesn't it? My hope is that you would live in the anointing which you have in Christ. That we would be confident knowing that when Christ returns, we who are in Him will find peace instead of judgment. Be encouraged through the teaching and the preaching of the word, and cling to those who would encourage you in the anointing which you have in Christ and the Spirit. And finally, and the most important, continue to abide in the message that you have received. Continue to abide in Christ, knowing that it is through Him we are given the promise of eternal life. Amen. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, We thank you for your grace, thank you for your love, and we thank you for this beautiful anointing which you have given us through your Son, Jesus Christ, and that you have done something miraculous, making us vessels of glory, that we are temples of God, because your Spirit lives within us, just as in the days of old your Spirit lived within the temple. But each of us, each of us is that now. And it is because of this we can walk boldly. Not because of ourselves, but because of He who lives in us. So we thank you, Lord. Give us courage to face every day for your will and for your glory. In your Son's name we pray. Amen. Please rise as we sing.